morning when we get together together. Um, so we're going to continue our morning um, in prayer. So if you would, please join me in prayer. We're going to be praying for uh, this morning, praying for another church in our community, and praying for an unreached people group as well. <clears throat> Father, we come before you and just confess that apart from you, we are in a state of sin. Father, we are so thankful that in you, you offer forgiveness. Father, too, uh, this morning, uh, just I want to confess that it's been difficult getting ready for this morning. Um, ask that you would just um, speak through me clearly um, in a way that glorifies you and builds up this body and that we may enjoy you this morning. Um, ask that you would put me to the side, that I would take no confidence in the flesh and just enjoy your glory. Father, um, this morning, we want to lift up a church in our community, the um, Iglesia Bautista España Ridgecrest, and I apologize if I said that incorrectly. But, Father, we want to lift up this church, um, ask that you would encourage their pastor and equip him to faithfully proclaim your word, um, Pastor uh, David Salazar. Lord, um, encourage him um, and just speak through him this morning, um, whether he's currently standing proclaiming your word before his people, um, or um, if he's about to, Lord, just be with that body this morning. Lord, we ask for unity within that body, um, and also for unity within our community with them, that um, on a Sunday morning, it would not be about uh, Spanish-speaking churches and English-speaking churches, it would not be about black and white churches, but it would be about your church in our community. Father, we want to lift up um, an unreached people group as well, um, the Balkar people, um, people of 117,000 people, mostly in the Caucasus, a Muslim people group that has only 0.05% Christian. Um, and if you put that together, that's smaller than some of our life groups when you count children. God, we ask that you would encourage and equip those believers, the few that there are there, you would give them confidence in you. Lord, I ask that you would make scripture available and that you would send workers into that field to speak your truth to them and that you would just be drawing them to you each and every day. Father, we thank you so much for the work you do and continue to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Welcome to the end, or the beginning of the end, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, just to give you a little idea of where we're going to be this morning um, and the following um, Sunday next week, um, two sermons covering the entirety of Philippians chapter 4. Um, if you read through Philippians chapter 4, it really kind of feels like several separate distinct sections. Um, where Paul's kind of trying to get out his last thoughts as he's concluding his letter. Um, hopefully, as we go through these next couple weeks, we'll see how that's not necessarily the case. But to give you an idea of what we're dealing with, in this one chapter, Paul addresses internal conflict. He speaks both to his condition and their condition. He addresses the gift that they gave him and their continued support of him. And he offers a list of these short, pithy exhortations or these imperatives um, that are a result of all the indicatives given throughout this letter. 
And then he closes with a typical um, greeting and a benediction. So we were going to look at this chapter as a whole, but we're going to break it down and focus on just a couple verses each week. Um, This morning we're going to focus primarily on verses 8 and 9 and Paul's exhortations to participate in the advancement of the gospel. And then next week we're going to dig a little bit deeper and kind of look at how these exhortations and how these concluding remarks um, carry this theme of consolation and anticipation which I think will be very fitting as we head into Thanksgiving after that and then begin the season of Advent the following Sunday. So if you would, and if you were able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, and I will be reading uh, verses 2 through 9. And I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syndike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. So, considering that we're beginning the end of the book of Philippians, I think it's fair to look at how we got here. Um, So we're going to spend a couple minutes just going back and reviewing um, what we've talked about over the past couple of months. So if you remember way back at the beginning um, when Neil was up here, Neil talked about how Paul is flipping the lenses of our lives sharpening our vision to see a more and more clear view of God. He talked about going to the eye doctor, and it's like, better or worse? Well, Paul is showing, he's like, better, better, better. And this perspective gave Paul the ability to look at his imprisonment and his life, really, to the point where he could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that perspective was reframed by the example of Christ in his condescension and ascension, as more is covered. As a result of that, we shine as lights in a world among a crooked and perverse generation, and we hold fast to the word of life and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Terry talked about and then gave us some examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And in light of that, we can truly count all things as loss because we have something better in Christ, namely Christ himself. And we can know him through our union and participation in his suffering, death, and resurrection, as Greg talked about last week. And the suffering is not just something that we have to deal with along the way and that the power of the resurrection equips us to endure, but instead this fellowship of his sufferings is the power of his resurrection. And two, 
this fellowship of his sufferings was not just persecution, but it was all this fleshiness. Like last week, Greg started the sermon of like, how was your week in the flesh? It's like, hmm, maybe we should start every week that way. I know I felt it this week. So as you experience these same realities in the flesh um, that Jesus did, this weakness, vulnerability, lack, loss, and death, as you experience those as one who belongs, <clears throat> belongs to Christ and you participate in this fellowship of his sufferings, in this mess, that's where the power of the resurrection gets shown off. Greg talked about how we are carrying the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in us. This is how we know him in the here and now. So Paul, he hits this ultimate of like knowing Christ in this fellowship and union with him, this participation in his sufferings. And then he kind of heads into this conclusion for some final exhortations, greetings, right? So he's, he's like, all right, we got this. We know Christ, and now we're done. But what happens first? Verses 2 and 3. Yodia and Syndike, two prominent women in the Philippian church, are having a disagreement. The flesh strikes again. Now, we could easily do a sermon or two or 12 on this disagreement. And I would say when people go through um, chapter 4, often that is the case. But this morning, we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 8 and 9. But there are some great things to be gleaned from these verses, um, looking at like the value of women in the work of the gospel, about how to address and mediate conflicts. But Paul's focus in this letter is not conflict resolution. This letter is not about Yodia and Syndike. It's not about some yoke fellow or a true companion, or about Clement and the rest, whoever they are. It's about Christ. Paul's writing this letter about Christ. As you read through this letter, it's in Christ, in the Lord, in Christ, the gospel, Jesus, Christ, over and over and over again. Uh, one of the commentaries I read said that they, when they counted it up, all these mentions and indications pointing to Christ in this short letter, 61 times. So if we read this and don't look for what Christ is doing, what we're being called to do in Christ, we might be missing something. So with that, we're going to kind of set verses 2 and 3 to the side, and we look at verses 4 through 7, it kind of feels like a completely different um, section. As Paul kind of turns to this concluding list of these short, pithy exhortations. And we may circle back to this some next week, but for now, we're going to read this as just a list of imperatives that are a right and fitting response to the indicatives that Paul gave throughout the letter. He's calling us to rejoice in the Lord, to pray, and to give thanks. These are a right and fitting response. But not only that, they're part of this conforming work of Christ. When we are in Christ, we do rejoice. When we are in Christ, we do pray, and we give thanks. And these things are outwardly evidenced by gentleness and peace. And this puts God's character on display as he redeems us to share in his likeness. So like I said, we ran through those really quick. It's a great point to come back to those in life group this week or at the uh, lunch table this afternoon. 
but we're going to be focusing on verses 8 and 9. So I'm going to read those again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if, anything, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, when you read this through the first time, you might wonder when you see all these whatever, 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 like, did Paul forget what he was saying? Is he trying to close out this letter? And he's like, um whatever. You know, like that, that good, true, whatever, like that uh, worthy, um, like whatever. You know, you know what I mean, right? Is that what he's doing? I hope not. <laughs> no, like Paul's using these uh, rhetorical strategies, this rhetoric. Um, he may not be good at speaking, but he's very good at writing things that are to be spoken. This would have been read out loud before the body, So he's using this repetition to point to this is what is important. In this passage, he's drawing the attention to this section. It's like, whatever, 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 whatever. Listen, 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 listen. And then he gets to the next part, and he's like, and, 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 and. Paul's drawing the attention into this this section. Because Paul knows the situation the Philippians are in. He knows that they are being persecuted from the outside. In chapter 1, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul knows that they're facing suffering and persecution. And Paul's been there, more than most. And he knows that in the midst of that, we are tempted to isolate. That we are tempted to avoid that persecution, avoid that suffering. For the Philippian church, everything outside of their church community was Roman or maybe some Jewish influence. And the source of their persecution was from Rome and from these Jewish Judaizers that are trying to break down the Christian movement. So therefore, it would have been really easy for them to say, everything outside of us is evil. Everything outside of us is causing us pain. So we're going to stay right here within us. Paul corrects that view. He says, whatever is virtuous in the Lord is good. This, this whatever, puts the gospel on display in the midst of this present darkness. He calls them to think about these things. You know, just to sit around, kick back in the armchair and just be like, hmm, yes, whatever is good and true, I shall think upon these things. No, that's not what he's doing, thankfully. He's not calling us to sit back and ponder some sort of speculatory pondering about Oh, perhaps there is something good out there. Perhaps there is truth out there. Perhaps there is something praiseworthy and commendable. This word that he uses there for think about these things, think, the word indicates that these are true things. 
not some speculatory pondering, but it's something that we have to reckon with. The the word could literally be translated as to reckon with or to take into account. In fact, the word is used throughout the New Testament saying like uh, one good example that would be familiar is um, when it talks about Abraham, like his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Same word. We have to reckon with and take into account these things that are in and around us. There is good around us, even in these fleshly sufferings. And Paul, he's intending for the Philippian church to select out what is morally excellent and praiseworthy from whatever belongs to the world around them, and to do so on the basis of Christ. And you could say that there is good around us because we're in these fleshly sufferings. Because as Greg talked about last week, that's where we know Christ. And Christ is good. In Christ, we can look around us and see the good because we see Christ, who is true good, is truly praiseworthy, is truly truth. He is justice. He is commendable. He is excellent. And when we meet Christ in these sufferings, we see him. We see that out there. So what about in our context? Where might we find such praiseworthy and commendable things? You know, I think a lot of people um, going through this, they deal with this primarily on the idea of like general revelation. The idea that there is beauty in creation, that we can enjoy music and arts. And we can marvel at the complexities of math and science and be like, God, you are so good. Maybe it's sitting in a movie where they're telling this redemptive storyline and being like, hey, that, that's our story. That story of redemption is my story. It's our story. We can enjoy that. But I think also Paul's not just talking about that. You see, whatever, these wherevers, it includes things where good is actually happening, where we can come alongside that and even start these things of good. In our context, it might look like things like social justice, things like racial equality, human rights, being a good steward of our resources, feeding the needy, all these things that take place in our context. Paul's pointing us to these things. But Paul's warning He's saying, don't spend so much time censoring these overtly fleshly things. Instead, perhaps we ought to spend more time discerning what is good in these things. I'm going to read a quote from one of the commentaries I was reading that kind of helps put this in perspective. If you're not following me, um, listen to this for a minute. It's a little bit long, but hopefully um, it'll help. He says it much better than I do, but... It's from a commentary by Gordon Fee. He says, this, this idea that we're talking about here, um, is especially relevant in a postmodern, media-saturated world where truth is relative and morality is up for grabs. The most common response to such a culture, unfortunately, is not discrimination, but rejection or absorption. This text suggests a better way that we approach the marketplace, the arts, the media, the university, looking for what is true and noble and admirable. 
but that we do so with a discerning eye and heart for which the crucified one serves as the template. Indeed, if one does not carefully consider and then discriminate on the basis of the gospel, what is rejected is very often the mere trappings or the visible expressions of the world. While its anti-gospel values, such as relativism, materialism, hedonism, nationalism, and individualism, to name but a few, are absorbed into the believer through cultural osmosis. This text reminds us that the head counts for something after all, but it must be a sanctified head ready to practice the gospel that it knows in what has been learned and received. You see, when we look at the world around us without discernment, when we do that apart from Christ, or when we do a quick high level, like, oh, that's good, that's not, without spending time considering and reckoning with these things, sin creeps in and sin prevails. A few examples of what that might look like. We protect the oppressed, but over time, greed and personal agendas keep in, creep in, and then we become the oppressor. We believe that Jesus is Lord and he is sovereign over our rulers and authorities, and we use our freedom to vote for what is good. But then we make an idol of our freedom, and we trust in politics for our salvation. We talk about how women ought to be respected and valued, but then we stay quiet or maybe even laugh when our coworkers make crude jokes because we give in to peer pressure and our own insecurities. Maybe we volunteer at a local food pantry or, or build a church building in a third world country or go help out with hurricane relief. But over time, our motives turn from helping those in need and glorifying Christ to having cool stories for our friends and great pictures to get more likes on social media. We love, we love our neighbors, even those messy and difficult ones, right? Until they actually move in next door and we have to deal with them and their messiness is kind of lowering the property value of the neighborhood. We stand up for truth, but we respond in hate instead of gentleness because it's, I just don't understand why they don't agree with me. We advocate for social equality, but we let our pride and laziness get in the way when we realize it may inconvenience us to enact real change. We believe in truth, but give in to relativism and treat it more like a personal truth than the absolute truth found in Christ. Or maybe we study medicine to help the sick and the needy, but then we begin to idolize science and we minimize or even forget God's role. We stand up for the rights of the unborn, but deny a helping hand to their parent or their families or even them after they're born because, after all, they have to earn their own way, right? Now, in our community, we have the Rafa Clinic that's a great example of this last one. They are helping not just prevent abortions, but they are helping the families and they are working in the systems to make a real difference. So please don't take this the wrong way. I'm not up here trying to condemn or accuse or point fingers at anybody. I'm simply using these examples to help you understand what's being said here. So let's look at one more example to see where this is coming from. We're in a church. We're doing great. We're glorifying God. 
we are putting into practice the things that we have learned, and we are working in our community, working out and being a light in our community for the gospel. But maybe we let our personal agendas and pride creep in that hinder our practicing of the gospel, prevent us from moving forward. Does it sound familiar? Don't answer that out loud, because I'm not trying to point to anybody in here, right? I'm pointing to Yodia and Syndicate. Right? Do you see yourself as a threat to the unity and the advance of the gospel in and through this body? Maybe you should. Maybe we ought to give pause to this idea and think about it, because these two women, they weren't terrible people. We may have been sitting here listening to the examples like, man, only a terrible person would do that, right? But we ought to take pause because these two women were considered dear friends of Paul. He calls them his fellow workers who have labored side by side with him in the gospel. This term, fellow workers, is something that Paul reserves and uses in particular for people who have made a significant contribution to his work in the gospel. Some names that he uses for may sound a little familiar, Timothy and Epaphroditus, mentioned in this letter. Priscilla and Aquila, Titus, Philemon, Mark, Luke, Aristarchus. These are the people Paul calls his fellow workers. This is not necessarily the same as what he's talking about the Philippian church earlier. He's like, hey, you've been uh, partners with me in the gospel. He's saying these fellow workers, a significant contribution often people who suffered along with him in his work. These were two exemplary women working out the gospel who simply had different views or approaches to how that should be put into practice. And in doing that, they inhibited and prevented the advance of the gospel. Paul doesn't say they're quarrelsome like he does elsewhere. He just says they disagreed. They lost sight of the gospel That's why throughout this book, Paul's calling the church to be of one mind. Be of one mind. One mind. This isn't necessarily you and me in one mind. This is us of the same mind as Christ. We are being united in Christ, and we are to be of one mind with him. When we approach our disagreements as keeping Christ's view in mind, that helps us count others as more significant than ourselves following his example of humility. It lets us subjugate our personal agendas to the larger agenda of the gospel of Christ. So if not before, I hope that you're kind of seeing what we're talking about here now. It's so easy for us to lose sight of Christ when we go out into the world, into the flesh. And if we don't approach it with this gospel-saturated Christ-fueled discernment, we're going to get lost. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about um, our mind. Verses 5 and 6, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For the mind, or for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
Paul's saying that we're being transformed, conformed into this mind of the Spirit. Our mind is not according to the flesh. So when we move out into the world and move into the flesh, we have to have our mind set on Christ. We have to be of one mind together with Christ. So then how do we discern these whatevers? Easy answer, Christ, right? Paul's calling us to follow the example of Christ. You see, the Philippian church was able to discern these because they received the gospel from Paul. And they were continually learning. And not just learning, but practicing. You see, Paul's saying there's no dichotomy, there's no at odds between what we learn and what we believe and what we practice. Learning and practicing have to go hand in hand. And what else goes hand in hand with that, if you have a third hand? Maturing, growing, and being sanctified. Look back in chapter 3 of Philippians. Picking up right where, uh, where Greg left off last week, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, in verse 15, sorry. Um, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Paul recognizes that our ability to think this way, to think with maturity, that maturity is something that comes from God. He's saying, let those of us who are mature think this way. We can't think that way without this maturity. But if we don't have that maturity, he also recognizes that that does come from God. Like I just said, sorry. <clears throat> um, he says that if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. He will grow you in this. We can't do this on our own. We can't do it apart from God. We can't even try to, right? But God also doesn't leave us with that. This whole passage as you read it, all these yous that are in there, especially um, in some of the sections we skipped over, you, 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 you. It's all plural. We miss that in English. Paul's saying, you're doing this all together. Even like what we were saying earlier, this idea of being of one mind, it's not me and the person I'm at odds with being of one mind. It's all of us together as one mind with Christ. You is plural, and even in verse 8, he starts out, finally brothers, plural. And with this mediation between Yodia and Syndike, he says they need someone outside of the two of them. So he recognizes, one, we can't do it on our own. We need to be mature. And also God has given us the body to help us with that. But all of this kind of begs the question of why then is it important to discern what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise? Like, does it really matter? See, for Paul, this is not just some sort of feel-good, like, hey, there is good out there. There is excellence out there. Like, that's something that the philosophers of that time would do. And Paul's working really hard to distinguish himself as not some New Age philosopher. You see, in, in their context, philosophers would go out into public venues 
and proclaim interesting thoughts, something for people to consider and ponder. And then over time, they would gain a following, and people are like, yes, we like what you're saying. And then those people that are following them would begin to financially support them and become their patron. Later on in chapter 4, Paul goes through great lengths to say, I'm really thankful for your gift, Philippian church. You did a good job. You've been supporting me. But I didn't need it because you're not my patron. I'm not some philosopher being supported by people who think I have interesting things to say. I didn't need your gift because my patron is Christ. What he's doing here is he's exhorting the Philippian church that as they go into the flesh, into the world, don't idolize it. That's pretty straightforward. But he's also saying, don't be idle in it. You could say that Paul's exhortation here is to Hellenize. Now, that's not necessarily a biblical term. It's something you may have learned in history class and probably forgot. Um, and if you hear it now, you're like, wait, what? But this idea of Hellenism kind of refers back to uh, the spread of Greek culture under Alexander the Great. This idea that as he would go through and conquer these new lands, he would take Greeks with him, and when he'd conquer a land, he would put Greeks in charge, and he would uh, settle all these Greeks in the land to spread culture and influence and power. And that's a big part of why Alexander the Great got that little tagline, the Great, because he spread his culture and power and influence over most of the known world at that time. And for Paul, talking to the Philippians, this would have been very much on their mind because Philippi was a Hellenized colony. In fact, the name Philippi is a direct tie to their Hellenization. When they were conquered, they were renamed Philippi after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And it didn't stop then. The Romans came along, and they continued this practice. It's part of what led to their great influence and power over time. And after a decisive series of battles near Philippi, Rome realized Philippi is an important location. So they set up Philippi as this um, Roman military colony. They took a bunch of soldiers, and they moved them and settled them in Philippi. And then they said, well, when you retire from the military, you got like this this colony for veterans. It's a veterans' home for Roman soldiers. Because the strategic location of Philippi, Rome was like, we want to cement this people, this group, or this location's authority to Caesar as Lord. Paul, on the other hand, look back in chapter 3 again. Verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? The enemies 
They set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. See, in this context, citizenship was not about where you lived. They were not a citizen of Philippi. They were a citizen of Rome. It was about where your loyalties lied and on whose behalf you were acting. Our Lord is in heaven. The term Paul uses here is that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Savior and Lord is what they called Caesar. Same words, especially in Philippi. He's saying our citizenship is in heaven. Our Lord is in heaven. And his kingdom advancement, his transformative work is taking place in and through us now. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have the little footnote in your ESV, you could translate that as, Only behave as citizens of the gospel. We are citizens of the gospel. We are acting in and through and on behalf of the gospel. Now, what Paul's trying to say here is that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think on these things and practice them as you have seen me do in this context, as you have seen Christ do from what I have taught you. This is where what Terry talked about comes into play, where we shine as lights in the world among a crooked and perverse generation as we hold fast to the word of life and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is not Paul trying to overemphasize works. This is just part of imitating Paul and putting into practice what we have learned. You know, we hear a lot, and Greg referenced this last week, the, the term or the kind of catchphrase of in it, not of it. It's really cool, right? Makes for good logo. It's catchy. You can put on a t-shirt. You can make a little logo of it, not of this world, right? It's kind of permeated this Christian subculture. The only problem is people may say it or have a sticker with it or something like that, but in reality... They apply it more like, not in it, but of it. And they still hold these worldly values, but they put a Christian label on it. Maybe others apply this as, not in it and not of it. And they retreat and isolate, saying, I'm not a citizen of heaven down here. My citizenship is up here. I'm going to go live in heaven, even though I'm still down here. They isolate. And they never partake in what Christ is doing in the here and now. Still others yet apply this as in it and of it, and they only live down here, and there's no fruit. Their fruit looks like that of the world, and if you look at them, you'd say, you're not in Christ. I don't see that. So let's look at where this actually comes from. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 17 to the high priestly prayer. We're going to pick up reading in verse 14. <clears throat> now I've given them your word, 
and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also uh, be sanctified in truth. If you read through this, you realize that the action, like the point of Jesus' prayer here, is not that we abstain from the world. The focus is not that we are not of this world. It's definitely not that we become worldly. The focus here is that we are being sent and we are being sanctified. This idea of being sent with discernment is not new to Philippians. In Mark chapter 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, whatever, right, whatever, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. As you go, as you are being sent, you have to go with discernment. What's crazy about this passage in John, though, is that Jesus is not asking the Father to take us out of the world. In fact, he's saying the Father is sending us into the world, into this mess of weakness and vulnerability, lack, loss, and death. Of all the times Jesus could have said, Father, take them out of that, this would have been it. This was the night of his crucifixion he's praying this. What a great time to be, oh, let's all go up here because it's really bad down here. You know, maybe instead of in it, not of it, maybe we should say in Christ, not of it, but sent into it. You know, ultimately, these whatevers in this world, it's always going to pale in comparison. It's just mere glimpses of this truth and honor and justice, purity, loveliness, commendability, excellence, praiseworthiness of Christ found in him and revealed fully in this future culmination. But when we live in this broken, messed up world, we have hope in that future consummation of the glory of Christ in this new creation, new heaven, new earth. This is that not yet that we talk about, that not yet in which we hope. But in the here and now, we have glimpses of this new creation. We have glimpses of this glory of Christ. This is what we call the already aspect. And this already aspect does not take place up here, separated from what we're doing down here. You know, it doesn't take place separate from all these sufferings and pains and wars and exploitations and smells and hunger and everything else that we have to deal with on a daily basis. In fact, you could say it takes place precisely in that world because that's where the Father sent the Son taking on human flesh 
with all of its vulnerabilities and infirmities. And that's where the Son sent Paul, and that's where he continues to send us. Our participation in this difficult, messed up, broken world is because of our union with Christ. Christ was sent into this world to take on the mess. And he was sent to do the work of the Father in this world. It's an ongoing work, but at the same time, it's also been completed. So as we're on this road from resurrection to resurrection, from the death of Christ and the life of Christ, um, sorry, from the death and life of Christ until this final consummation and new creation in Christ, that perfect future fulfillment, we walk on this road in Christ, reckoning with his truth in this world and putting it into practice in whatever we do for the glory of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that as it gets difficult, as life is hard, that we know that it's hard because you...